Good morning, Westridge. Good morning. Let me say Happy Mother's Day to all of you. Thank you very much. I got some added hazards up here that I'm going to stumble into and set myself on fire if I'm not careful here. So, uh, somewhere between Rolla, Missouri, and Springfield, Missouri, right there on Interstate 44, just off the road, it sits with a big sign that can be read as you cruise past going 65 miles an hour. It simply says, The True Church. You wondered where it was. <laughs> right there. When I, was, uh, when I started a new church in Chicago about 20 years ago, I had an opportunity on a Sunday morning to visit uh, about a dozen churches on a single Sunday morning. We just went into one for a few minutes and we raced to another one for a few minutes. It was an eye-opening experience. Uh, we visited churches conducted in Spanish, Polish, Russian, Vietnamese. We even found one in English <laughs> to attend. The worshipers were African American, Eastern European, Latino, Asian, Anglo... The architecture ranged from ornate 19th century cathedrals to back alley warehouses to stereotypical chapels with steeples. The music ranged from somber high church liturgy to loud singing with an equally loud band. The dress ranged from very formal to extremely casual, from designer duds to thrift shop specials. Now my question for you, is this. Which one was the true church? Or were any of them the true church? Someone has said the two most frequently asked questions in heaven are, what's he doing here? <laughs> and, where's so-and-so? For too many, the church has been known as a place for division, not unity. A place where the wounded are shot, not bandaged. A place where personal agendas, not divine mission, prevail. It's not difficult to understand the two most frequently uh, given reasons for why people avoid church. The first one, all Christians are hypocrites, which has a fairly easy answer. Sure, probably so, but go ahead and join us. You'll feel right at home. <laughs> the second one is this. Christians are always fighting with each other. That one is not so easily answered. Pick any community at random, and odds are at least one local church is in the midst of a bloodletting. Pick any denomination, Catholic, Protestant, right-wing, left-wing, red, yellow, black, or white church, and you'll find political infighting. Contrast this with Christians in the early centuries of the faith. When they gathered, they were known as the communion of the saints. Surrounded by an angry, hostile society ready to feed them to the lions, their unity 
it had a powerful effect. I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of the communion of the saints. Anybody else want to sign up for that? I don't want to be a part of the chaos of the saints. I want to be a part of the church that makes visible God's salvation, not one that perpetuates our collective prejudices. In Acts chapter 2, there is an amazing portrait of the early church that changed the world. Look at it very closely. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many signs and wonders were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And, and, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. What we see here is a picture, is a rare example of Christian unity. It's what Jesus prayed for in John's Gospel, chapter 17, verse 23. He says, may they be brought to complete unity. Why? To let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. That's what he prayed for. That's what this was. They were living it out. Does anyone else see the stark contrast of this portrait and the 21st century American church? See, I've got this bias. I'll just tell you about it. I think in too many churches what we have is cultural conformity, not Christian unity. One's easy to get. One's hard fought. See, my bias is that too many churches have become little more than cultural affinity groups. People who eat, dress, think, smell, speak like me. Who like being like everyone else. Who like being congratulatory to each other for maintaining the sham. <laughs> Let's take a look at the real thing here this morning. We have this text before us in this most famous passage about the church. And let's just let it speak to us about the elements of true Christian unity. Element number one, they were devoted. The text tells us that to which they were devoted. But it all starts with devotion, with commitment, with loyalty. Christian unity is a resolute commitment to do my job to believe that Christian unity is important, to serve, to give, to be a team player. It's a commitment not to drop out. It's a commitment to hang in through thick and thin, to stay through the pain and the chaos and the emptiness. It's a devotion. Right out of the text, here's what the church was committed to. It says, first of all, they were committed to the apostles' teaching. We have the apostles' teaching collected in what we call our New Testament. We have the same Hebrew or Old Testament Bible they studied. And we have the same teaching they were given in our Bible. 
One author writes, we're at a special time in history where people are losing trust in government, in corporations, in diet plans, (laughs) in science in general. But now that these are fading away, many are scrambling for an authority to turn to. And Christians are starting to remember the authority that comes before all the Word of God. There's no Christian unity without a commitment to the Bible as the Word of God. They were devoted to fellowship, it tells us. Now, the English word fellowship has kind of lost its meaning in the morass of a Christian subculture. Though its meaning is simple enough, having in common, community, commonness, belonging to one another. There are two miracles that occur when we commit ourselves to Christ. The first is we become personally transformed, and the second is we become committed to others who have also been transformed by the same Spirit. We're knitted together. Now, contrary to what some may believe, humankind does not naturally live in close, harmonious, giving, forgiving relationships. Just watch 30 minutes of the news provider of your choice and tell me that's not true. Or if you don't have 30 minutes, just watch two minutes of the Bulls' playoff games. (laughs) See, it's been a little chippy, that game. Chippy. And according to Harvard sociologist Robert Putnam in his groundbreaking book, Bowling Alone, he says it's getting worse. Part of it has to do with the way we live, especially in large metro areas like Chicagoland. We live in one place, work in another place, go to school in a third, to church in a fourth. He documents how over the last few decades, commuting and sprawl has broken down social capital. One social historian describes the conditions in America today as a social solvent. The forces at work in our culture are intensified, and they tend to dissolve the patterns of relationship that used to hold people together. Just take a look around. Fragmented family lives, isolation, long commutes, mesmerized in front of the TV, video, internet. And that's just the top layer of what's going on. There's no Christian unity without a commitment to each other, without a commitment to this common oneness. Two actions strengthened this common togetherness, and they devoted themselves to that as well. The text tells us they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. It's talking here about communion, the Lord's Supper, that which we observe every single Sunday here at Westridge, and this text is part of the reason why. Communion is at once a symbol of His brokenness and our togetherness. One is the result of the other. You don't take communion with outstanding grudges. You remember how God in Christ forgave you. And you do the same for others. They devoted themselves to prayer. Just as communion is meant to remind us of our commitment to each other, so praying together is an amazing bonding agent. Have you noticed that? It appears the early church had meetings just for prayer virtually impossible to sit with another 
and remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in communion and pray with them and remain at odds with them. The first element was they were devoted. The second element of Christian unity is they were filled. This passage says they were filled with awe. Now, interestingly enough, the word in our text, awe, is the Greek word from which we get our English word fear. And it's talking about the effect this miraculous Christian unity had on the surrounding community. Suddenly, everyone in the city began witnessing that God was working through these people, creating a community they had never ever seen before in their life. This supernatural was visible and it baffled them. Those outside the communion of the saints were looking in and literally they were saying, that's an awesome church. Do I have to tell you? In this country today, the emotion is more often apathy instead of awe. They were filled with awe. They were filled with generosity. They started sharing their finances with each other because there were needs present. From the beginning, the church had to deal with financial issues. We're not the first church in tough economic times and high unemployment. The very first church had the same issues. And whatever transformative power God has worked in your life that doesn't eventually reach your finances is counterfeit. Undoubtedly, part of the apostles' teaching they were hearing was that they'd heard Jesus say, Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. To whom much is given, much is required. I had the opportunity this week, just because of some really strange coincidences, to actually spend the day with a Christian philanthropist. And before this week, I didn't know who he was. But it turns out, he was a man who before this church was even started, when it was just a vision and a dream, contributed $150,000 to get this church started. And I had the opportunity to say to him, thank you. That gift has a return on investment that will last for eternity. Thank you for your generosity. They were not only filled with awe, with generosity... The text tells us they were filled with food. Yep. Amazingly, the Bible talks about food frequently. (laughs) And ironically, in a nation obsessed with food, we've seemed to overlook it. The original sin centered around a piece of fruit. Food is used as metaphors. Seeds are used in parables. There are a handful of Old Testament laws dedicated to what not to eat, what to eat, how to eat it, and when. Festivals were thrown with importance given to food. Jesus gave us communion, a meal with bread and wine. One sociologist says, food is physical, psychological, and emotional. There's almost nothing like it that serves as both a connector and a divider. This has become a little hobby of mine, researching food in the Bible and in American culture. I don't have time to go into it. Well, maybe I do. Um, 
It's impossible to fully understand another human being without understanding what they eat and drink. And are we ever divided on this subject today in America? On one end, there are the foodies. You know who you are. (laughs) Who have made food an art form. Others have made it a religion with celebrity chefs as the high priests. And then at the other end of the spectrum are those for whom quantity over quality is paramount. (laughs) Who actually believe that a taco or hamburger they buy for 99 cents contains something other than trimmings treated with ammonia and glued back together. (laughs) Who believe Olive Garden is actually an Italian restaurant? This is a restaurant that once introduced pesto, but the customers told them it was too green. Take it off. (laughs) The divide around food in this country has probably never been wider. So watch this. In the early church, taking communion was actually practiced around an actual meal with predictable conflict over menu, drink, timing, and quantity. Nothing's changed. I suspect part of the miracle of the Christian unity we're seeing here is people who formerly had great disdain for others' food but began to accept their cuisine and expanded their palate. Element three of Christian unity is this. They grew. One of the surest ways people see Jesus is the way in which we live together and show extravagant love to each other. This community called church, it's a place where we're loyal to each other, where we're vulnerable with each other, where we depend on each other. The early church clearly saw their devotion to Christ expressed in their devotion to each other. Today there's a spiritual hunger that wants community without commitment. And you know what? I understand that. Perhaps for whatever reason, abuse, betrayal, cynicism, you've developed a relational shell. A shell that wants connection to God without connection to a community. And for you it'd be a big risk to get connected somehow in a small group or volunteering in some capacity. We understand. But, on the other hand, a life of detachment and isolation, that's an equal risk. I'd like to encourage you to take one more chance. You may be saying... Living in a community that lives like Jesus, that's a great idea. Who wouldn't want to be a part of a community that's multicultural, multiracial, not just another affinity group? A place where second chances are given freely with no bitter aftertaste. A place that when others look on, they said, that's an awesome place. You can make a decision to do something about that. Either way is a risk. 
Risk-free life is not on the menu. Here's the rest of the story about this early church. As researched by renowned sociologist Rodney Stark in his book, Cities of God. In the year of our Lord, 50, there were approximately 1,400 Christ followers on the planet. In the year 150, there were almost 40,000 of them. A hundred years later, in 250, there were over a million Christians, 2% of the Roman Empire population. 100 years later, in the year of our Lord, 350, almost 32 million Christians comprising 53% of the Roman population. How'd that happen? It's no mystery why it happened. We just read about it. It's about a group of people who were devoted and filled. Francis Schaeffer wrote long ago, it's a true sign of the church when true Christians love one another. The church is to be a loving church in a dying culture. So, let me ask you the same questions I asked myself this week working on this message. To what are you devoted? What are you full of? That's one that others answer for me all the time. It's occupational hazard. How are you growing? You know what? I think we've set the bar for church too low for too long. Who wants to raise it back up? We've been settling for too little. Who wants to raise expectations? This portrait of the early church was more than a group of people meeting every week spouting moral platitudes. It was about showing the watching world Christian unity, and it left them in awe. Highly respected ballet teacher was asked by his students upon graduation, what shall we do next? Go out and astonish me, was his answer. Here's a new aspiration for those of us who want Westridge to be the kind of church that we've just read about. This week, go out and astonish people. 